All right, Kieran Perkins, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? Very well, Mr. Hawk. How are you? I'm doing great, mate. It's so good to see you. Uh, as we were talking off air, it's really good to see your face again. Well, it, it's, well, I haven't done the sums, but I'd hate to think that it's been uh, potentially uh, almost 20 years since we've actually seen each other. Although yeah. The US. <laughs> <laughs> it's been too long, I know that. You know, um, we were teammates uh, in 2000 at the Sydney Olympics, and that was uh, an incredible experience to be a teammate with you. And, and I want to kind of get into all of that. But um, I will say this uh, for, I've talked to a lot of people in the past couple of months on the podcast. I've spoken to just under 40, 40 different people, and a lot of them are people that I grew up with or people that I admired. And um, but I'll tell you this, Kieran, for a fact, no one had a bigger impact on my swimming career than you, because I would not be here today if it wasn't for you and, and your performance in 96. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because I missed the Olympic team in 96 by three one hundredths of a second and at, at the age of 20, 20 years old. And, and I'd been out of high school for about three years. And you know what it's like in Australia. There's no, we don't have a collegiate system. So, so when you leave high school and you go to train for three years to try and make the Olympic team and you miss the Olympic team by three one hundredths, that's a dead end. You're, you're done, you know? And my dad was telling me, Brett, it's time to get a real job, you know? So I'm sitting at home like every other Australian watching the Olympics and feeling like, okay, I could have been there. Great. Uh, but it wasn't until your swim, obviously, it, that, that really stopped the nation in the 1500. And, and we're going to get into it, obviously. But, you know, the swim that you had made me realize that I wanted to be a swim. I, I wanted to continue swimming. I, I just, you, uh, you put something in everybody in Australia on that day. But certainly for me, it was like, I can't, I can't quit. I, I want to I do, I don't know if I wanted to do what you did. You just inspired me to keep going. And so um, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Karen Perkins, that's for sure. That's very kind of you to say, mate. I, uh, I did not know that. Um, but, yeah, look, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? You know, and we're all the same. We actually swim for, our, for ourselves and for our own reasons and the goals that we, we want to achieve. Mm. And you just can't comprehend that you might impact other people um, in that way. It's, it's, um, it's always uh, um, very humbling to know that. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, no problem, mate. Uh, what what are you up to these days? Um, well, I work at a bank here in, in the home in Australia. Um, I've moved to Melbourne three years ago now, um, working for uh, National Australia Bank, and uh, I currently look after a team of uh, four hundred uh, uh, on on the phone bankers, looking after uh, customers in uh, our lending and retention business. So it's. Um, not sport related. I'm back on the board of Swimming Australia, which is very exciting. But um, but yeah, I found myself um, sort of the first ten years. I, I did a bit of consulting and kind of wound my way through a couple of different businesses. But um, I've been in the bank now. This is my eleventh year, and I've kind of sort of found a little bit of a niche home, which is uh, which has been great because, uh, as we all know, uh, transitioning to life after sports never easy. So I've um, mm. I've got pretty lucky that I've, I've managed to uh, land well. Yeah, good stuff, man. That's awesome. Well, uh, you know, the reason why I like to talk to people, um, especially people that have had a lot of success in swimming, this is really a swimming podcast. I've had a couple of other people on here, but I'm interested in the mind uh, and, and what drives us and drives you and, and what, um, what are some of the things that you had to do to 
to get the performances out of yourself. You know, I think uh, we're, we're very centered on the physiology of swimming um, and how to train the body, but I'm much more interested in the mind and the power of the mind and, and, and how you can manipulate that to get performance. And no one did it better than you over the years, whether it be breaking world records and having success and then having um, situations where you were down and out and people had written you off and you come back and, and win gold medals. So you had kind of the, the, the spectrum there where everything's going right and everything's going wrong and you still figured out ways to perform. So I'm super interested in that, mate. And um, were you always uh, mentally tough, like from a young age, or was that something that was bred into you? Um. Oh, look, I, I would say it's something you develop. I'm a, I'm a, I don't really know if it's something that people are born with or not, but I think your life experiences and the things that you kind of go through, the, um, the mentors you have around you and those people that kind of provide um, influence and, and example impact that. So, you know, my dad was a pretty... Uh, Pretty, pretty hard focused sort of guy. I had, you know, my, my main coach from my swimming career, John Crow, who was also, you know, much the same old school kind of guy who, um, you know, was fairly un- uncompromising when it came to, um, you know, expectations around behaviour and things. But, um, yeah, <laughs> because this is a swimming conversation, of course, the thing that I, I honestly, when I, I kind of try to assess why I became... Or, or develop the mentality I have. It, it is actually because as a young guy, um, I grew up in Queensland and we all did sport. Like that was just, mm-hmm. you had to. There was no question about whether you did or didn't. Um, and the universal truth in my sporting experience as a young kid, and I'm talking kind of from the age of, you know, maybe five through to 10, my, my universal experience was. Um, Difficulty. Yeah, you know, I, I have no hand-eye coordination whatsoever. I can't run to save myself. <laughs> like I, I am just your your atypical, um, physically untalented um, land animal, right? And so, you know, when you, um, you you play football or cricket or or soccer or whatever, and um, your experiences are bad, kids are brutal, right? Like, you know, they, they absolutely will let you know you're hopeless at something or you've you're, you're, you're ruined the game for them or your team's lost because of you. And um, the truth is I copped a lot of that when I was young. You know, I got beaten up constantly um, by, you know, all these, these kids who were um, obsessed with football or cricket or, or those sorts of sports. And every time I tried, I sucked at it. So I... I I, I learned very quickly that, um, you know, if you want to experience and enjoy those things, um, you know, you've you got to make a choice about what feedback you'll accept and whether or not you'll allow others to dictate um, what the quality of your own personal experience in that stuff was. And, and you know, um, and that was influenced by a whole bunch of other things too. You know, my parent, my dad was always into me and my brother about doing our best regardless of, outcome um you know i probably didn't realize until i was much much older my mum um a very was a is was a very um positive and motivate and inspirational type person like she just kind of just had this this constant um sense of of it's all going to be okay don't worry kind of attitude that she instilled on 
again, my brother and I, whether she, she necessarily believed it herself or not, who knows. But, um, you know, I, I just, just got to this point in my life where, um, um, you know, and, and because we are often young when we start swimming, that um, I realised that I didn't like doing all those other sports because I hated being blamed for the losses or feeling like I was failing. Um, and we, my primary school had a swim club and every Friday night you could go and have a swim regardless of how good you were. And they, um, they used to, you know, write the, the time you did up on the chalkboard um, at the end of your lane. And that gave me a focus of have I improved or not? Have I done better or not? Or is there some kind of indication that I'm getting, um, I'm, I'm getting that forward movement from my effort? And, um, you know, it was home. Like it just, just became my space. And I think, um, you know, that journey evolved for me as well. Because I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't actually classify myself as a kid who, swam well or, or showed any real um, talent or aptitude for it until I was probably around that, that 13, 14 age group, um, which again, you know, when you're young, um, that's, that's a, it's an eternity to just keep sort of butting your head against the brick wall and doing it because you enjoy it, not because you're getting any reward. Yeah. Mate, I had absolutely zero uh, desire to swim a 1500 ever in my life. <laughs> um, what was it about the distance events that really drew you into that? Um, look, if I'm, if I'm honest, initially it was success. Um, I'm not a sprinter. I was never fast. And so I think, again, you know, when I, when I often talk to the uninitiated about my swimming career, you know, like as a junior in primary school, I never won anything. I never broke records or, or, or did well. In fact, even Mr. Crew used to admit that, you know, I was just this idiot kid in the corner who was causing more trouble than anything um, for those those early years. Um, and it's because, you know, you start across the pool and then you go to 25 metres and then 50 metres. And it wasn't really until I started swimming 400s that I started, that I kind of, you know, did a, a time that qualified or that, 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 that was at a successful level in my age group. And, um, and so doing those, those, First 400s at 12, um, I, I made my, I qualified for my first age nationals um, in, in the 400 because of that. And then the next year, um, the opportunity came around to sw swim a 1500. And I just, I don't know, it just, it just worked for me, right? Like, I, and I, intellectually, I get what you're saying. Like, what, what person in their right mind would choose to swim a 30 lap race if you've got the option to do a, a, a one or two? <laughs> but I think for me, it was, it was this thing of, um, you know the the sense of control. You know when I swam, when I when I raced in fifty or hundred meter races, I kind of felt like I'd just close my eyes, hold my breath, throw my arms around, and hope it went okay. Mm, that's what I, I did. I, that's what I did my whole career. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, well, and, and I'm glad it worked for you because it didn't work for me. Um, but you know, fifteen hundreds. I, I don't know. I just felt like this race where you get in there and you you. It would evolve and you'd, you'd have a, an opportunity to get into a rhythm or set a pace or feel like you're kind of um, managing yourself through this this thing that I could I could feel more because I and I think that was the other thing again because I um, you know I'm not I'm not necessarily mentally somebody who um, has you know super sharp reflexes or that really super quick um, acuity that I mean, you guys must have, like to swim 50 metres fast, you, you, you must feel that 50 metres go slow in your brain as you kind of 
assessing and being absorbed in it. Whereas for me, it would literally just go on the blink of an eye and think, shit, what happened? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. whereas the 1500, I felt it, I'd, uh, you'd evolved through it. And it, it was just a race that I, I connected with more. And, and, and look, to be honest, the other thing, um, I'm one of those swimmers who love to train. You know, I, I, I can honestly say in most of my swimming career, there was very few times when I, I really truly um, approached a racing environment with, with kind of joy that this was my moment. It was always more of a, um, an opportunity to prove that everything I'd been doing in training was going to pan out or, was, or had been worth it. Um, but by and large, and not every day because no one does every day, but by and large, most days I'd rock up to training and I'd, I'd actually be happy to be there and I'd, I'd enjoy the environment and the work. And, you know, I often look back on it now being sort of old and well past it that, you know, like a lot of my best days in swimming that I remember were the days when you'd come home from training and, um, you know, your shoulders are so sore that you, 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 I'd have to lay on my stomach to sleep at night because my shoulders hurt so much. And I kind of got a, a deep sense of personal satisfaction that I'd, I'd achieved something that day that I'd, 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 I'd earned it. And that, that was kind of far more of a motivator for me than hoping that one day in years and years to come, I might, you know, do well in a race. Yeah. Man, I was watching some video. I, I, I try not to do much research, but, you know, I had to, I had to go back just to kind of get a feel for who Kieran Perkins was yeah, and just, just get those memories uh, going again. But, you know, one of the things that really stood out on, on some of the interviews I watched is you, you always called your coach Mr. Carew, you know. Why, why is that? Um, look, I think um, there's, a, there's a momentary generational thing there. There's no doubt that um, that was like... You, Teachers, parents, coaches were Mr. or Mrs., um, Sir or Ma'am. But um, look, it, it was a respect thing. You know, he, he, he in our squad when I was really little demanded it. You had to call him Mr. Carew. Mm-hmm. And then I think as I, as I got older, and I can't tell you how much it freaked me out being on teams where the swimmers from other squads would call him John. Mm. And, you know, I reckon it was a good couple of years where I'd, I'd bristle, you know, I'd like, it's Mr. Crew, you don't call him that, you know. <laughs> but um, it, it, it was just this respect thing. You know, he was a, he was a guy that, um, I mean, in all honesty, he was, he was surly. He was, um, you know, like he was one of those coaches that screamed at us. Mm-hmm. Um, really demanding from a behaviour perspective and all that sort of stuff. And, and even as we got older, you know, um, we sort of got into this kind of thing where he knew he could yell and scream at me and unload his kind of angst um, and not have kind of negative repercussions on it because I could kind of absorb it and, and I'd be cool, whereas it'd be other members of the team. We couldn't cope with it. So he'd get angry with them about something but yell at me. And then when he was calm, he'd go back to them. Um, and, and that, and I know that sounds kind of weird, but, but there was this kind of understanding and respect that he was the boss. He was the guy that, that owned the strategy for what we were doing in training, that, that had the, um, um, the, the leadership of the squad and, and, and the work and what we were doing in that environment. But for me... Um, you know, I, 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 to this day, still marvel at how much this guy who had trained 
multiple world record holders um, and, you know, members of Australian teams and gold medalists. And he never stopped learning. Like, you know, um, he unfortunately had a stroke and, and uh, about a year before he died. And that last year of his life, after he had the stroke, he, he had a lot of trouble communicating. Mm. Um, and I'll never forget going over to his house um, probably about, I don't know, three months after he sort of um, was back home. You know, he's, he was in one of those um, hospital beds in the house because um, movement was an issue. And, and his wife had him set up in front of a TV and he was watching um, AFL. Not because he particularly liked AFL. In fact, I don't think he really liked AFL. But it, you, you could see it in his eyes. He was watching it because he was trying to learn. He was trying to find new and better ways to, to coach and communicate and, and prepare athletes. And, you know, I, I, in my career, I saw him engage with cycling coaches, with horse, he actually had a background in horse racing, but people from horse racing, um, you know, business people. Like he just had this insatiable appetite to learn and you'd see him evolve and develop the coaching that he was giving us in that environment. And it just, it just always, I was in awe, always, and it blew me away. And I think, um, you know, that, that, that kind of position that he held for me as, as being um, an extraordinary human being and an extraordinary coach that, um, you know, was just always dedicating himself to find ways to help us get the best out of ourselves, just embedded a depth of respect that will never change. Yeah, man, that's awesome. I love it. I, I wish there was more of that these days too. I wish I wish they had have called called me Mr. Hawk, but that they called me other things. Um, but uh, listen, you know, there's a very famous set, uh, swim set that that coaches still use to this day, uh, religiously. And I, and I I don't know whether it started with you, but I know that you're one of those people that. Uh, m- uh, definitely we're at the forefront of it. And it's 3100s, right? 3100s on 130. Everybody still does that to this day. And I can remember back in the day, they used to try and make me do it. And then they'd also try and, co- they'd try and compare me to Kieran Perkins and, and, and how he would do it at the time. I'm like, did that start with you? Did that set start with you guys? And, and do you remember that set? Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. So where, where that evolved from, um, and it did start with, the group of us. So I don't. I'm not sure if I could. I could. I could say that Mr. Crew like invented it. But um, there was this uh, physiologist that used to work in Queensland, Bob Caffeine, who um, um, you'll remember, I'm sure, because yeah. he mm-hmm. drove it at this in the Australian team, and 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 he had these theories about um, measuring and monitoring heart rate performance in athletes, and mm-hmm. wherever he got the idea from, I don't know. But he. He came up with this program. It was actually Glenn Houseman and I who were probably the first two, um, you know, distance swimmers that performed at, at international level um, doing this. Um, and and yeah, look, it was a it was a, a thing that I think Bob Bob was trying to find a way to um, you know put athletes into a race pace stress environment to see how they reacted and responded to it. Mm. Um, and where where it really upped a level dramatically was because um, and and this I do know Mr. Crew had this theory he he decided somewhere along the way that you know even though 
we'd always viewed 1500 meters as a distance event. The reality is, is that if you wanted to swim sub 15 minutes or faster, you needed to be able to have, be able to swim fast. You know, you couldn't just, you know, churn out aerobic um, pace all day uh, and, and succeed. You needed to be able to change speed. You needed to be able to ha have, have better speed in sprint. And um, so he, he's, he used to drive into um, me, and, and, I, and I do know he developed this for us, um, this, this, these programs around trying to do fast. So we used to do sprint, sprint programs, you know, dive 50s on, on a minute 30 or whatever. Um, but the, the heart rate set and the 3100s, you know, when it first started being utilised by guys like Glenn and I, you know, we were trying to get around the one, you know, if you could do those repeating around 102, 101, then, you know, that, that initially was fast. And Mr. Crew sort of um, very quickly went, well, no, that's, that's not fast. If we're going to break 15 minutes, you've got to be able to average 59.9. So I assume in, a, in the middle of a 1,500-metre race, you're going to be doing 60-point or 61-ish as a, as, a, you know, um, as a pace you can handle while churning through your um, uh, lactate. So first and last hundreds, you need to be doing much quicker than that, you know. So why don't we just practice doing, you know, 57s, 58s all the way as an expectation, you know, through those 3100s. And it was that picking it up at that pace that he really, he really brought forward. And, um, and yeah, it, you're right, it did become a real cornerstone. I think the thing that was different or, or maybe might be different today, you, you'll know better than me, mate, we did the same program pretty much week in, week out. Right, like Monday morning was a heart rate set, but it was usually 400, 300, 200, 100, three times. Monday afternoon was sort of um, distance. Tuesday morning sprint set, Wednesday, a uh, Tuesday afternoon recovery. Wednesday morning, the 3100s, Wednesday afternoon distance, Thursday morning sprint, Thursday afternoon recovery, and then, you know, Friday again. So. And we did that week in, week out. Like the, the, the drills or the skills or the bits around it might have changed and adapted a little bit, but the, the main sets that always averaged in, you know, 3K for the heart rate sets, 1,500 metres for the sprint sets, and usually about 45 to 5K for the distance sets, week in, week out were basically the same. And it used to drive some people mad. They couldn't cope with the repetition of it. Um, but again, for me, it became this thing. Like I actually used to often look forward to the Wednesday morning 3100s because let's mm. see how quick I can go this week. But my past <laughs> goes slower, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, a bit nuts. Mate, they still do it. Yeah, it's crazy. People probably hate you for the way that you set the bar <laughs> because they're still doing it to this day. It's, it's insane. Uh, but well, in terms of the race pace, I mean, I guess that's, you know, race pace training is something that has, has only come on uh you know f f for everybody like everybody's doing it these days race pace training basically but you know you guys were at the forefront of that and, and there was also also rumors that went around about how you did it and, and you kind of touched on a little bit you know you said that you would you would get out fast and um but there was always this rumor that no matter how fast kieran perkins was going in practice he would always finish with his best repeat is that is that true is that a mentality that you had yeah, look, I think, again, you know, it, it really was just this race pace thing, right? You know, you, you, you want to practice putting yourself under pressure as much as you can so that when you get in a race um, and you do have those moments where your brain 
melts on you and you, you um, get irrational that your, you know, your worst practiced habit is still perfection. Mm. Like, and this, this is sort of a thing that I, I often in business now talk about with people as well. You know, human, human beings under pressure, no matter who you are, no matter how smart you are, we all under immense pressure will revert to our very worst practiced habit. And so, you know, we, we do that volume in swim training, or we certainly did back then. And I did a lot less than some, you know, when I first started swimming 1500s, you know, guys, the, the generation before me were doing 10, 11, 12 kilometers a session. Um, and I never did more than seven and a half. Um, but the, 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 the core work that we did was about stressing yourself to your extremes so that you have practiced what it's like to do that. And Mr. Crew used to hammer me about my technique in those, you know. Um, so you do the 3100s, you do the first couple at, you know, on average, say for me, my memory, um, in the normal training, you might do the first couple around the 56, 57 pace. Then you do the next 27 at, you know, sub sub 60, as quick as you could hold sub 60. Mm. And then the last one's just all out. Just go for it as fast as you possibly can. And so because it's an all-out sprint and it's as fast as you possibly can, it was usually the quickest, you know. And I, I remember often sort of doing 55, 56s normally and then, um, you know, as you sort of get closer to comp and tapering and things, you know, um, 53, 54 um, would, would be sort of what you'd pump out in the last one. And it was very much about doing that. And the irony is... I mean, you talked about me and, and my race habit. Um, it was also how I was physiologically built, though, right? Like, whatever speed I went out in in the first 150, I, I, I could settle back a little bit to maybe, you know, so if I, if I went out in a 56, I could settle back into that sort of 58, 9 pace and hold that until, you know, my heart exploded. Mm. But if I went out at a 58, 59 pace, I'd settle back into the 60, 61, and that would be where I'd get stuck. I could kick it up for an all-out sprint at the end, and so my last 100 would always be quicker, but just that middle bit, you know. So my race tactic, the thing that worked for me that my physiology was best designed for was to go out fast, and then I could hold that pace through the whole race no matter what. Um, it would just just work. and. And, and um, you know, um, that was what we practiced as well in training. That was how we, we uh, did it. Yeah, mate, well, it worked because you, you broke 15 minutes for the first time at age 16. That's pretty freaky, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not bad at all. But um, what was it for you? Like, you, I mean, you had a lot of success early. Uh, you're breaking world records. Uh, after that's when you started to break world records and started to win gold medals. What was it for you? Was it the, was it the medals? Was it the records? Was it, was it just crushing your opponent? Like in your, what were you doing it for? I just wanted to see how fast I could get. Really? That, that was it. And, and, you know, the, the real, um, and it's, it's a really interesting thing because as I'm sure you're finding when you do these interviews, you know, it's different for everybody, right? Like I, I, I remember listening to Susie O'Neill talk about how um, she hated training but loved racing and just if she could every day she'd race because she wanted to destroy a competition, 
Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't understand that. Like, I, I, I actually, I actually can't mentally wrap my head around how you could um, feel that way. When the truth of it is, is you are going to have to train every day for how many thousand days um, for your opportunity to get to a race. So for me, it was just I, I love to train. I love to push myself to see how much better I could get to kind of one be always in that that sort of cycle of continuous improvement and um you know when i got out of the the pool after each race um you know mr crew and i would have this conversation about what worked what didn't what are we going to do to fix it and then from then on it was always about how, how much faster i could or or what we were doing to get quicker like what what was the next speed i think where you know when i think about my international journey the like that sort of 10, 11 years of my international swimming career, where it started to go wrong and where I did plateau in terms of outright performance was when I started to get more interested in am I winning or not and what does that mean for, you know, um, sponsorship and, and, and my, you know, the, the, the broader impact of my sporting career. That was when it started to get much, much harder to actually um, rock up to train and do it properly and, and, and really be focused and, and committed as I had been when, uh, you know, it sort of went through the first half of my career, and it's um, you know, it's it's a it's a fascinating thing to look back on and see that evolution. But yeah, if if I, if it if it came come like if you got to want me to distill it to a single thing, I just wanted to see how fast I could get. Uh, Ricky Bobby, man, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't I don't remember events real well. I don't know what it is about me, but I don't remember like particular events. But I have feelings, you know, and um. Yeah. I feel like I was at uh, at, uh, an event where you broke a world record when I was younger. And tell me if I'm wrong. Did you ever break a world record in Blacktown in Sydney? Yes, I did. Oh, good. Thank God. Because I was like, I swear I was at that that meet. Yeah. Okay. 800 free. Yeah, uh, yeah, 800. Yeah. And and look, I mean, like, it's just nuts. But they actually... Um, invited me to that, and I think it was a was it a New South Wales state? Yeah, champion? yeah, it must have been New South Wales state champ. Um, and they invited me to it with this kind of carrot of if you break a world record, we'll give you a thousand dollars. And um, like, yep, I'm there. Happy days. I, I, <laughs> that's like more money than I'd seen from swimming. And um, and yeah, and and I think the thing that was really funny when I look back on that one now is. Um, they, I think they thought it was a pretty safe bet because it was an old-fashioned pool that had a, shallow, a, a really tight shallowing. Mm. Um, and, of course, you know, swimming theory states that when they started developing, you know, the modern pools that are two metres deep all the way through, one-and-a-half metre wide lanes with the big um, anti-wave lane ropes, that, you know, world records were only ever going to be broken in those types of pools because they were fast, not a old-fashioned pool that was you know the, the lanes were barely a meter wide the, it had a meter deep shallow end or it might have even been 90 like the three feet shallow end um and therefore and and i look i it was one of those things i um i am certain that we didn't taper for it because it was in the middle of uh training prep sort of heading um towards the uh the nationals but um 800 shorter race uh, you know, I, it was just one of those things. I, um, yeah, I nailed it. It was a good day, that one. 
Mate, well, little did you know I was there and I was, I was watching it live and it had a, again, it had a huge impact on me, just the way that you attacked your races and how, just how confident you were. I remember, I remember you walking around the pool deck and kids like chasing after you for your autograph and stuff. And I, and I, I was one of those guys that wanted it, but I didn't want to chase you. You know, I was like, <laughs> this Kieran Perkin, I just stared at you like, oh my God, look at that guy. Like, I just wanted to be, I just couldn't, like, I was just in awe of you. You know, like, you had this aura about you. Um, and, and just watching that race, it had such a huge impact on me. Again, I never wanted to swim an 800, but I just wanted to, I wanted to be um, as popular as you in terms of just like everybody, like, what, you stopped, everybody stopped when you walked into the room or when you walked into a pool, like everybody just looked at you. It was, it was an incredible, did you, did you know you had that effect on people? Um, look, I, I, no, I don't think so really, to be honest. And, and I, like, I, I definitely know that, um, or, or appreciated that, um, you know, kids were fans and, and people were, um, they'd follow me in, in terms of my swimming performance. But I think, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that was always um, hard for me as an athlete was this idea that I might be special or different or, um, you know, somebody who um, was held to higher account than anybody else or, or, or lesser account, you know, I mean, the, we often see on the flip side, you know, because oh, you're a gold medalist or you're successful, you don't have to follow the rules everybody else does. Like I just, I don't know, I just just had somewhere in my my upbringing this a bit more egalitarian kind of view, and so I never really um, felt felt that way. I, I think the the irony is is that I was probably a little bit, um, especially when I was young, socially awkward. So, you know, one of the things that I struggled with was this thought that people were watching me, and so I, I got um, I was very good at kind of living in my own bubble a little bit and not really being drawn into that because it just freaked me out too much. Um, and, um, and you know, the, the thing, mate, if I'm really honest with you, it wasn't, it wasn't until I retired that I actually got it. And I actually got it because um, Don Talbot, our head coach at the time, mm. who I'm sure you remember well, Don was a fairly um, enig enigmatic sort of human being. And one of the things that... Um, I, I never let get to me while I was a swimmer, but it always sat in the back of my head that, man, I don't get it. Why Why is it that I was never asked to be on the leadership team? I was never asked to be team captain or, uh, you know, and I, and, I, and I knew I was never going to win the popular vote as it was, but, um, you know, I, I just never got any of those leadership positions on the team. And, and I, when I retired, I actually fronted Don, you know, uh, got old enough to feel brave enough to ask him a hard question. Um, and I said, mate, look, why? Why was it that you never asked me? E even, even if I could have said no, but just never asked me to be on that position. And he said, you're kidding, right, aren't you? And I said, no, no, I just, it was just one of those things that I never understood. And he said to me, you do realise that um, the, firstly, I didn't want to distract you. I wanted you to be able to continue to be the athlete that you were, but you do realise that the way you behaved every day showed more leadership than anybody else on the team could ever have delivered through a title or a mm, job. Yeah. Um, 100%. And it kind of, like, it, it, it really hit me, you know, and I, and I 
I, I thought about it a lot after that. And there was moments where it freaked me out because I'd think back to things I did and think, oh, Christ, that was not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then, it, you know, just it was just one of those things. You know, I never really felt like I needed to play a role. I was just being me. Um, and, you know, you, you, you're also getting the most... Um, the most professional version too though right because when you're when you're swimming and you're training or you're racing you're there to do a job and so you know i'm i i was being that person because that was how i needed to be to get the best out of myself not necessarily because i was trying to um pretend to be somebody you know and i'd like to think away from the pool or away from that environment um you know more of the relaxed social um human can come out but um but yeah it was just just one of those things, you know, I, I, I was just being me because I wanted to perform well and deliver the job. Yeah. Well, you were, you were also uh, super polished, you know, when in our era, a lot of people, a lot of people think of the group of, you know, Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett and Michael Clem and, you know, that kind of that, that crew, but you were kind of a standalone before all that you were, you were the, super consistent guy that's breaking world records you know the standalone superstar that's super polished always says the right thing and just seemed to be very measured in the way that you spoke and intellectual like was was that something that you had to work on or was that was that natural for you um look there's a, there's an element of both in it right like i think to 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 a point there was a, a nat natural um you know, my, my dad um, drilled into my brother and I from a very young age that, you know, um, like the please and thank yous and all that sort of stuff. But if, you, if you're going to speak, uh, make it, um, you know, worthwhile. If, if you, what was it? If you can't, you can't say what you mean, you'll never mean what you say. Mm. Um, and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, he, he, he was always once I got into swimming very, um, you know, very, very tight on the fact that, um, you know, when you, when you're in front of the media or you, you're talking, you are, you are representing yourself, you're creating a value and, and, or a set of values and you're, you're promoting those and therefore you need to um, take responsibility for, um, for, for that, that um, person that you present. But, you know, the thing for me and, and, Definitely, I got more polished because I learned how to speak more. Like you know, you, you learn how to present, right? Like the, yeah. the mechanics of presenting. So mm. your diction, um, the the way you stand, or like yes, you practice those sorts of things over time and got better at them. But you know, I I honestly don't like I never behaved differently or or pretended to be something that I wasn't. I think the thing is, I'm I'm just the sort of person I'm pretty pragmatic and direct um that's helpful when you're speaking to media for instance um i'm somebody who um isn't afraid to to sort of have an opinion if i'm asked um and so you know most of the things that i i did say or the way that i i sort of came across was who i was but you know you get comfortable with it over time right like i, I think i was 14 or maybe 15 first time i got interviewed um, mm. you know, for, for media, um, and I never, I never did it right. I mean, there's the, I could, I could still list, you know, some great examples, even as a, as an older athlete where I, I absolutely made a mozza of, um, press conferences or, or presentations, but, um, you know, 
Yeah, it was just just me. Um, uh, I, really lucky my pa- my dad drove that into me, um, and you know, they they we, we weren't a particularly um, wealthy family, you know, average very average middle class Australia at the time. I mean the the first time I travelled outside of um, a, a car trip was when I flew over overseas um, with swimming. Um, so you know that that was um, yeah. But my, my my family sacrificed everything for my brother and I to go to private high school as well, and I, and that helps. You know, you, you go in that environment where you got teachers that are driving that into you and, and teaching you how to sort of act and, and, and present. So yeah. Mate, I want to talk about a couple uh, of your competitors, three of them in particular, um, and and kind of just your approach to them and your relationship, maybe, um, and I don't know, just just dig into it a little bit. But what 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 was Glenn Houseman to you? Inspiration, um, you know, Glenn, um, and and your story about me breaking that record in Blacktown. Um, I have the same story about Glenn in Adelaide at the South Australian Aquatic Centre in 1989 at the Commonwealth Games trials in the heats. Mm. You know, back in the late 80s um, and even right into the middle 90s, like there was only ever a couple of world records a year broken globally. Mm, you know, yeah. in Olympic year, you might have got half a dozen to a dozen at the most, but most years, you know, the whole world of swimming would reverberate with the news of a world record because it rarely happened. Um, and in the 1500 freestyle at that time, we had Vladimir Salnikov, who was the um, world record holder, two-time Olympic gold medalist, um, and the first and only person who broke in 15 minutes for the 1500. Um, and, you know, as a 15-year-old at my first Open National Championships, my first trials for an Australian team, um, I was in a culture in the sport at that time in, in the 1500 where breaking 15 minutes was impossible. World record was, you know, um, don't even don't even talk about it. You're insane. Mm. And I remember being in the grandstand because I was in the heat before Glenn. Um, and I, I remember the noise of his his race increasing as the race went on. And I missed the first sort of seven eight hundred meters because I was talking to Mr. Crew, doing my, my, my own thing. And as the noise in the pool built up, I, I sort of turned around and started paying attention. And I, I will never forget watching that last 800 metres and seeing Glenn Houseman under world record pace in the heats in Adelaide um, in the 1500 metres freestyle doing the impossible. And he touched the wall and he, he never got credited with that world record, which was um, an absolute travesty mm. because every every single human that was in the pool except the officials know he did it. Mm. Um, but I, I remember watching it and, and, and that was the first time in my life that I witnessed somebody achieve something that I had believed before that was completely and utterly impossible. And it, it blew my mind. Like I, I just, I went away from that thinking about it for, you know, weeks and weeks, just kind of trying to understand what it meant that that this this guy who was unremarkable in his physical presence and his mm. and even the way he swam the fifteen hundred, I saw him do the impossible. I saw him break a record or get under fifteen minutes mm. and break a world record that I knew couldn't be done. Mm. Um, and it opened my eyes, you know, I think from that, that time forward, um, I, 
I was never, ever after that ever constrained by what anyone else thought was possible or by a, a line in the sand or a time or a record or all of that just evaporated for me from then on in my career. I just believed mm. um, you could you could do whatever you want to do as long as you work hard enough and, and, and are willing to give it a crack. And so, you know, he, he, he really opened that, that door of, of possibility for me. Wow. That's, that's awesome, man. I love that story. Um, next one is you had a, you had a interesting relationship with, uh, Daniel Kowalski. Daniel was a uh, competitor and, and I've, I've watched some videos back and I'm like, okay, yeah, that kind of reminded me of some things. And, um, you know, so I saw it from the outside, like everybody else. I also saw it from the inside. What, what was your relationship like with Daniel? Look, it was, it was, it's, it's fascinating, this whole concept of relationship, you know, because, um, like the whole world expects you to have this intense rivalry and dislike and hatred for each other where you, you want to kill each other. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know what it says about me, but I never really cared that much about the other guys I raced against to get that passionate about wanting to beat them. Um, I wanted to win. I just, what I wanted to do was swim as fast as I could and the other people in the final were just seven warm bodies to climb over. Um, and so I never really had this kind of very distinct kind of focus. I think what, what happened, um, you know, my version of the story, and you, you should ask Dan about his version, but, you know, for me it was very much a case of he was, he was a guy who pushed me hard because we do training camps together and things. And he was always there sort of pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. Um, and so he was a, a real driver to, to, to succeed and go forward. I had had and have deep, deep respect for the guy because honestly, I, I don't know anyone that trained harder than Dan. And I mm. put myself in that category. I think of all the guys I ever trained with, was on the Australian team with, raced against, Dan Kowalski was the hardest worker of anyone that I ever, ever experienced. Mm. Um, and so you have this weird duality where he kind of was this guy that I was um, impressed by because he was so dedicated and trained harder than, than I thought I did and I needed to work harder to, to, to live up to that. And I respected him deeply for it. Um, I think Dan is a personality like he's somebody who likes to connect and, and with humans and be be engaged in a relationship. Um, and um, by and large, I'm not. Uh, and so I think he wanted to connect and 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 get closer, or to have this kind of more friendship. Yeah. That I just couldn't um, couldn't give him in that way. Um, and then, of course, the media pressure of it all built up over time as we became these two guys that were fighting for that position as the number one swimmer in the 1500 globally. And, um, and that added a lot of pressure and made it really difficult. So I know there's all these moments and stories of me, you know, um, being this incredible kind of um, guy at psychological warfare. Mm. You know, like, thanks, but I was never that... Um, calculated or even aware of my impact on others for that to be true for me for me i was just so laser focused on what i needed to do that the collateral damage around me happened and i barely even noticed and i certainly didn't do it on purpose because i wanted to 
you know, I was too busy worrying about me and my thing. And, um, and, and yeah, so as a consequence, I think Dan, the relationship I had with Dan was challenged. Um, um, but, you know, the, the really funny irony is that he is still the athlete I respect the most that I raced against, not to diminish anybody else, but he is. And um, I, I don't know if you're, you're aware, there's this book called The 1500 or just called 1500 that a, a journalist, Mike Coleman, wrote, Australian guy. Um, and he wrote about all of Australia. What is this? What is it about Australians that we're so good at 1500 freestyle historically? And we have this connection to it. And he interviewed everybody that was alive that had ever swum 1500 metres for Australia. And in the interview, there's this, um, he, he talks to Dan. Um, and Dan talks about Atlanta. And um, I, I, I read this book and it was the first time that I'd ever actually read a book like that. And it was certainly the first time that I'd ever read commentary from my competitors about their experience of, of racing the race and racing against me. Mm. And Dan tells this story in Atlanta that um, in, the mor- in the morning of the final, he was in the uh, change rooms shaving down and, and um, Bill Kirby, one of our teammates, was, was with him. And... Um, I walked into the, because we were, we were in, the, in the dorms in Georgia Tech, so we, we had these shared um, um, toilet bathrooms. And I, I walked in, and, and Dan's retelling of the stories is that I walked in and stood there and just stared at him. Mm. And Dan said that really upset him and freaked him out because we'd always had a really good cordial relationship. Like, we always spoke to each other, we wished each other luck, we always, like, we always got along really well and communicated. And in this instance... In this moment, I glared at him and didn't say anything and just turned around and walked away. Um, and, and he really was challenged by that. And, you know, I, I read that and, and two, two things hit me. First one was, oh, my God, I remember that. Because I remember walking in, seeing Dan, and it, my brain's just gone into overdrive and I was, as I thought, shit, it's Dan. He's going to beat me. What do I say? Fuck, I don't know, just run. And I, I, I literally ran away from him, right? Like, I mean, this is the, the amazing thing about human perception. Um, and then the second thing that hit me is that for, for a moment, a short moment, I, I, I actually thought, you know what? Winning, winning in Atlanta was not worth the um, um, emotional agony that it, cre- it caused for Dan after that, you know? Like, and that was the, the more human side that, you know, you probably don't get to show when you're an athlete because you are so focused on excellence and performance. But, yeah, you know, I, I, I remember reading that and actually tearing up just thinking, man, I can't believe I did that to somebody else. That's just horrible. Um, and it certainly wasn't worth winning a race over. Yeah. And then I thought about it afterwards and thought, well, that was Dan's experience and I yeah. oh, my intent, I'm sorry, but actually, no, I'm glad I won. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you know this about yourself, KP, but uh, you could be a cold mother, man. <laughs> you, I mean, there are times where you are ice cold, you know, and, and yeah. I think that's probably part of Dan's experience is that, you know, he wanted to be, he wanted to be buddies with my Australian teammate, you know, let's go, let's go one, two here or something. And you're just ice cold. And uh, so I yeah. don't know if you recognize that in yourself. Oh, mate, I've, I've had to be very, uh, I've had to recognise it uh, being a business leader, right? Because, you know, you can't, you can't behave that way with uh, people you mean to lead in a, in a, co- a company environment and get away with it. Um, and, you know, it's even little things like I've, I've worked out about myself, Hawkey, that um, 
I, I have a resting prick face, you know. If I'm sitting <laughs> on do. video conference and I'm I'm thinking about something, I just look angry, and I gotta, I, or I'm dissatisfied. I gotta remember to smile every now and again and sort of not look like that because it, it starts freaking people out. <laughs> yeah, you do actually. And, and you know, like I, I do look back at some of that stuff, and there, and like you do think, man, I can't believe that that you know, I missed this opportunity to sort of. Um, be me more and in, in a in a relaxed kind of um you know um connected way with with guys on the team but at the same time like we only came together at war in in many ways you know and yeah. so it was i was there at, in in that frame of mind all the time which was also i guess part of how i managed to do okay well we didn't have anyone that was consistent we had people that won like you said we've had we've had some gold medal winners um but they've had moments you know we never had anyone that was consistent over time and dominant like you were dominant and and honestly not only do i have you to thank for my career but i think the the australian swim team in in 2000 and 2004 we're not as dominant as we as as we were without Kieran Perkins and his dominance before that. I mean, you showed us what consistency was. You showed us what world domination was. I mean, you you were the front runner of that. And if you had to be cold and ruthless to get that, then that's okay. It's fine. No one else was doing that. You you were the man, and um, you know you you changed swimming globally. Honestly, you you really did. The, there's no Australian rivalry with the U.S. without Kieran Perkins coming along and like I said you you've changed so many things for so many people I just don't think they realize it and and so I'm just so glad to be talking to you today because I want people to understand the impact that you had not only on Australian swimming but world swimming honestly you've really had that that big impact oh, that's uh, I'm not sure of that but thank you for saying it I certainly um, I mean I'd like to think in the Australian context that I've I definitely did bring a different level of professionalism mm-hmm. um, to the way we approached it because I, you know, I, I do think back to, you know, when I was when I was young and I came onto the team, um, you know, I mean, the attitude of the athletes at that point was, if you make the Australian team, you've made it, and 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 that was kind of as good as it got, you know, like they never they never had this outward aspiration to you know, beat the world or, or, or you know, I mean, I, mate, I remember going to the 1990 Commonwealth Games and there was a moment there where we were worried the Kiwis were going to touch us up at, at their home games, that we mm. wouldn't have a, a high enough performing swing team mm. to hold the, hold the New Zealanders back and the Canadians were all over us. And, you know, like it was just, it was just this environment at that, that I entered into where, you know, we just had this attitude that if you make the Australian team, you, you made it. Yeah, you're the the big big fish in a little pond, and mm. you're all you're all that. Um, yeah, and and that just never sat like it never seemed enough, you know, to me. I just always kind of thought, well, yeah, I'm on the Australian team, but that's because that now gets me to race internationally against these other guys, these names, these people that I'd I'd um, you know um, grown up watching and admired as well. That you just sort of think, oh, wouldn't it be great to be like them? And then you get there and you're in the pool with them, and you're thinking. Right, two arms, two legs, um, one head. What, why are they any better that, or more special than me? Actually, they're probably not. So I'm going to have a crack here and see if I can beat them. Yeah, yeah mate. You changed the belief system in Australia. And, and uh, 
you know, along with Don Talbot, I've got to give Don a lot of credit for that as well. You know, you both hand in hand at the same time kind of really changed the belief system and it helped that we were awarded the, the 2000 games because there certainly was now this, you know, renewed uh, energy to kind of be successful on the world stage. So that, that all helped too. But um all right, well, one more name for you. So then, you know, after you know, Glenn's the inspiration, Daniel's the competitor, and then you've got the new kid on the block, Grant, Grant Hackett. What, what was your relationship like with him? <laughs> um, the most challenged of all of the guys I raced with. Um, and, it, and it was that, again, the layers, right? Um, as, as you well know, because I know that Hackett's talked about it, um, you know, he and his older brother, sorry, his older brother and I are the same age. And so mm. we raced each other as little kids. Mm. Um, and, you know, again, context for me of actually, I don't really know who I'm racing against that well. I mean, you, you like, you know each other, but yeah. I, I never went at home. I never went home at night. Think like ruminating or thinking about somebody else. I was always too engrossed in my performance and what I was going to do better or, or next. Um, but so Craig, and I raced against each other for many years. And the one thing that was really clear is that we were very different people and didn't like each other very much just from a personality perspective. And I don't know that that um, would have ever changed a, a, in an environment. We're just different different folk, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden when I'm sort of, you know, at that, at that kind of zenith point in my career, right, I've managed to... Um, um, you know, defend my title in Atlanta and was coming out the other side to this opportunity to, to swim at a home Olympics. Um, all of a sudden, this kid rocks up that absolutely is, is on, the, on, the, on the rise. Like he's, he's yeah. clearly talented, strong, mm. improving, mm. Um, you know, and somebody that um, initially actually I, I kind of was was um, comfortable helping. Um, you know, I, I, I remember watching the first few races that he did um, and he had this real issue where he was losing focus in the middle of a 1500 and he'd, sort of, he'd drop off in the, in the middle 500 and mm. bounce back again. And I, I do remember saying to him one day, mate, if you want to break 15 minutes, stop losing focus in the middle 500. You've got to keep your head in the game and keep your focus in that 500. First 500 is easy because it's all, oh, we're in the race, we're excited. Mm. Last 500 is easy because it's, oh, my God, we're going to the finish, I want to win. The middle bit, pay attention and keep focused. I think the next race he did, he broke 15 minutes and never stopped from there. <laughs> Should have just shut up, mate, right there. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the thing is, in, in it, what became really fascinating is, is that, the again, the media built this, this rivalry up and then there was all this commentary and and kind of this, this out, outside story. Like, I don't think Grant and I ever directly had a hard word to say each other. No. I don't remember ever no. having a go at him directly or having a heart or, or vice versa. No. But there was always this commentary in the media and the headlines and the stories and, you know, you try to ignore it and just let it go because it's all just rubbish. But it did create this angst and this, and this thing. And I think, you know, again, because of the relationship that I'd had with Craig, it kind of reinforced and there was this background. So... It was really hard with Grant. We we just did not. Um, um, I don't think we probably spent enough time trying to get to know each other, to get to know each other, until way after. Um, and so, as as competitors, it was hard. Um, but you know, the thing that I guess was ironic for me, and it's hard to show. You definitely don't show it. 
when you're in it. But but honestly, and I, and I like honestly, when I got out of the water in Sydney, um, I, I was relieved and happy at how I performed. Of course, I wanted to win, but yeah. you know, I came back. 28-year-old father of two who, it, it, it took me three years to get back to that level. Um, you know, I won the silver medal. I swam faster than I did in Atlanta. And I got beaten by a better guy on the day. Mm. Uh, and he was an Aussie. And, and, and there was this, this moment where I think I, I got out of the water and I thought, I've done my best today. I couldn't have done any better. I'm really happy and proud with that. And I'm relieved because I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm retiring. I'm, I'm done never going near the pool again. And I felt like I'd passed it on to this guy who, who was going to keep the legacy for us continuing, right? Because mm-hmm. as you know, super professional trainer, you know, he, he worked hard, he, he focused on, on what he needed to do and he was a hard, hard, hard racer as well. Um, and so like it, it, there, there was kind of this moment of, of also relief that the that the, the baton had been passed on to another Aussie, and that mm. was going to continue on. Um, and I think you can only get to that point with with time and age, right? Like you know, if if he'd come along and beaten me in, in Barcelona or Atlanta, I probably wouldn't have felt the same way. But you know, third Olympics, twenty eight years of age, two kids life in front of you that you're thinking about it just it just brings a different perspective even to little things like um you know sydney was the only race ever in in any context sydney was the only race that i ever competed in that in the final when i walked out behind the blocks i actually looked at the crowd and absorbed it like i'd never done that before in my life you know because i was i was here in the race i'm focused on what i'm doing the people around me the noise all the rest of it who cares um, but it was my last Olympics. It was Olympics at home. It was a, a pool that for seven days before that we had been doing the, I'd been watching everybody else doing these amazing things and hearing the noise and like, it was just something that only with that age and experience could I truly, um, appreciate. And, and that was, that was again, part of that whole experience. I think what's probably happened since then, um, you know, and again, cause Grant and I, we're different human beings. Um, mm. You know, the, 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 some of the challenge that he's had post his swimming career, like you, you've wanted to sort of go and find him and grab him and say, mate, let's sit down and have a conversation here because what you are doing is not good enough and we need to, like I need to help you. I, I, I have to help you in this environment. Mm. But unfortunately, you know, that, that, that's not there, that mechanism and that relationship wasn't there. And so that was, that was really challenging as well. And I think now, you know, like we run into each other at these events and things. We live literally across the park from each other in Melbourne. And, um, you know, there is a, an understanding and a connection there that um, I, I don't think I have with any of anyone else that I ever swam with, you know. And it's odd, you know, because of the journey of our relationship that there is just an understanding and a, a, and a commonality that I think will uh, transcend it all over time. Oh, that's nice, mate. It's nice to hear. Um... You know, you you guys were incredible teammates to ha- to have. You know, the the standard was way too high for me. I couldn't I couldn't cope with it. But uh, it was it was just incredible to be part of the team. You know, um, let me ask you this: what 
we all know the story about Atlanta, you know, to be honest, I, I went back and I looked at it. I looked at the trials and you look like dog shit. And then I looked at the, the morning swim and you look like dog shit in the morning swim. So you've had this period of time where you just look like crap. Like you look like your rhythm was just completely out, you know, from the trials to the, to the games itself, you, you looked awful. And then you have this moment where you come out and you put out this absolutely dominant performance. I mean, what is it, man? Tell us something you haven't already said about this. Is there something that you haven't revealed to anybody yet? Is there, is there some, some secret that we don't know? Oh, look, uh, probably not. But, you know, I, I, I mean, the, high, the, 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 the lessons to learn, right? Mm. Things I communicate, the lessons to learn. Firstly, I got into that position in Atlanta or the lead up to Atlanta because I, I came out of Rome world champs and, and the in 94 and the Commonwealth Games um, in 94. That was the best I ever swam. Fastest I ever swam. The 400 in Rome was the only race I ever swam in my career that I got out of and thought, man, where did that come from? I can't believe I did that. Um, and I spent the next 18 months thinking about the final in Atlanta. And, you know, if I'm really honest about it, because I was dreaming about this thing that was 18 months down the track, you know, I wasted 18 months. I wasn't, I wasn't training properly. I wasn't, wasn't eating properly. I, like I was, I was doing 99%, but I wasn't hundred percent there. I was kind of going through the motions, dreaming about this thing that's miles away. And cause it's a long way away, you don't really, you know, execute as you could have and as I used to. And so by the time I got to the trials, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't quite fit enough. I wasn't quite trained. Like the mm. practice hadn't been there. So when I raced in that, yeah, rhythm was awful. Like it was all over the place, and and it was just because I wasn't ready. Um, and 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 that that was when the the, the doubt started to creep in. I think up to up to that final, um, where I you know came second to Dan and made the team for the, at the trials. Um, I believed it was all going to be fine. Mm. but got out of the water after that and thought, man, this is not good. Um, you know, I, I, I've got three, what, or 20 something weeks to the games. Um, I don't know. And, and so, you know, I doubled down and trained better than I'd ever trained before. I didn't race much, which was unusual. I used to do, Mr. Crew used to get me doing ocean swims on weekends and mm. district carnivals and all sorts of stuff. Like I used to race a lot um, during the season um and you know by the time the big big events came around I, I i was race fit and i knew i was race fit so i was never worried about whether i could race or not mm. um, but because we were so worried about how fit and prepared i was we trained hard harder than i've ever trained before but didn't do the racing because i needed to recover mm. and so um you know um probably one thing i've not really talked about much and and um it is something that I recognise because, you know, the core of it, mate, when it all's said and done, the difference between, you know, the winner of an Olympic final and somebody who doesn't win is the, is, is the person, you know, the winner's got their potential out of themselves on that day perfectly um, and everybody else has got a bit less. And, and, and the difference is in, in here, you know, like you don't get fitter, stronger, faster, technically more proficient on the blocks at the, at the Olympics, right? But when you stand on the blocks at the Olympics, what you have at your disposal is what you have. And you either use all of it or, or less. 
Mm. Um, and, and, and that is entirely the mental game um, and your ability to, to, to bring that out um, and get yourself into that space. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I also recognised and others around me recognised was that um, um, I, I wasn't... I wasn't as focused and as clear as I had previously been and so I needed to figure out why. And I had a physio at the time who, a uh, guy by the name of Roger Fitzgerald, and Roger was a, was a bit of a, a hippie, Kiwi, um, you know, had an had a, a incredible physiotherapist and had a different way of seeing things, but that also then extended into some stuff that, you know, the pragmatic, um, you know, um, conservative me would sort of, think is a little bit kind of, you know, crystals and tarot reading and voodoo type stuff that mm -hmm. I just couldn't couldn't see, touch or feel, so mm. get out of here. Um, and he actually introduced me to uh, an Indian um, guy who was a, a guru who um, I was introduced on the basis of, firstly, um, a medical practice that did a lot of really interesting things around um, understanding um, allergies and, 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 and one of the things that we learned about me at the time was that from a dietary perspective, I was probably over-indexing a little bit too much um, in certain areas and needed to straighten that out just to get balance. It wasn't a big deal, yeah. math, like, but it, it, was, it was a factor. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things that he did as a member of this medical practice was also do things like teach people how to meditate and breathing exercises and, and just things around focus and centering yourself. And so I spent um, a few months, um, a couple of days a week going in there and spending time with this guy, just learning how to um, switch off the noise and focus, um, which, you know, I look back on it now and, it, and there's kind of this moment of you think to yourself, you muppet, like in the, in the decade before Atlanta, you knew how to do that because you did it yourself repeatedly, which is why you were able to perform the way you did so well for so many years. And, and you got to this point in your career where you were defending your Olympic title and all of a sudden you've, you lost some of your own sense of um, self around the things that make you you and the things that allow you to perform. Like, mm. you, you know, it's amazing as we get older, risk of consequences or, or, or understanding or, or thinking about it um, you know, that sense of having risk around consequences it, um, builds this, um, you know, arrogance where you take for granted some of the basic junior 101 things that you learned as a, as a young athlete that actually makes you who you are and, and, and are parts of your toolkit that are incredibly important. So anyway, this, this guy helped me um, um, create a mechanism which allowed me to bring myself back into space. And so, you know, I, I had a shocker heat, um, not unusual for me. You know, I think when I look back on my swimming career, you know, one of the things I was, was fortunate with is that I often raced in the, in the, in the four by two relay, the 200 and the 400. Um, and I treated those races as, as the blowing out the cobwebs, getting into the, into the meat for the 1500 and so I could swim those races without any real real deep concern about how good they went because they were they were part of a mechanism process to get me to the 1500 and so they'd always go well because I didn't have the same intensity or sense of you know care um, 
and it would blow out the cobwebs and get me into that 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 moment for the 15. I didn't have them in, in Atlanta. Um, the, the heat was the first race and it was just a shocker because, because. Mm. Um, and in the race I panicked and I freaked out and I started to imagine all of the things that were going to disappear in my life because I wasn't the current Olympic gold medalist anymore. Mm. Um, and, you know, went through this really difficult 36 hours between the heat and the final of all of those emotional ups and downs of, you know, that kind of arrogance and, and relief that uh, should be right, mate, you know, you had a bad heat, but you always turn it on to the final. Don't worry, you'll, you'll be fine. Through to the depths of despair that my life was going to end and my mum wouldn't love me anymore if I didn't win. Mm. Um, and about three hours out from the final itself, I was, I was um, in the pool um, getting ready to do my warm-up and I started to just have this kind of, you know, panic attack, nervous streak, whatever you want to call it, I don't know, but I just, you know, heart pounding, starting to sweat, getting really anxious because I'm pumping masses of adrenaline in the system. And um, I just had this mental slap moment where I thought, you idiot, what are you doing? You know, if you don't get your brain into gear, um, you're not going to, you'll be exhausted before you even get out of this warm-up, let alone for the finals. So, um, you know, I used some of those techniques to kind of calm down and get myself back into the moment. And, and they were sort of the, the, the action trigger that enabled me to change my physical state. And then once my physical state changed and I calmed down and I got back in control of my brain, um, you know, I, I actually went into this kind of tick box exercise of, you know, you've spent your whole swimming career knowing, and, and I mean knowing, like not wondering, thinking kind of maybe, knowing that when you stand on the blocks, your greatest talent is performing. Mm. Like, and in fact, it's one of the things about my life in general, you know, school, I was always terrible. Like I, I, I wasn't great at dedicating myself to schoolwork, but when the moment came, I had to stand up and do a presentation or, you know, perform, it always just happens. You know, I, I don't know, I could just, I had that. So I always believed that and knew that about myself. But here I was about to defend my Olympic title and I'd lost that no. That no. Mm. Um, and so I went through the tick, tick box of are you fit? Are you, have you done your training? Have you eaten well? Have you slept? Have you, have you practiced your technique? Are your turns good? Blah, 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 blah. To this moment where I just went, you know what? Yes, I'm ready. And I'm either going to do my best and be happy that my best was good enough today as I had always in my career previously, um, or I was going to be full of this fear and uncertainty and doubt and guarantee a bad performance and have to live with that and know I'd be upset with myself forever. And, I, and this weight lifted off my shoulders, you know. I think from then on it, it got easy because um, I, I, I was there for me again and I was there to do my best and as long as I did my best, I would be satisfied regardless of the, the, the gold, silver, bronze, last, whatever. Um, the, the, the one moment of, of, of uh, sort of funny irony in that is that I, I, have, I have thought about and told that story thousands of times um, uh, in terms of the, I, was, I, I thought it was, I was ready going out for the final. Uh, and and uh, I think it was at the, God, it might have been the 20 year anniversary, 10 year anniversary, anyway, like years later. Mm. I watched um, parts of the race for the first time. That was another thing about me. I never watched my races. Like I was there. I know what happened. I don't need to see it again. Um, yeah. 
you know, Mr. Kerr and I had already talked about what I was going to fix, so I was too busy fixing it. And I, I, and I remember watching for this television show, and, the, and for the first time they showed me walking out behind the blocks because mm. I'd seen the last 50 metres a thousand times because that was always in the highlights package. <laughs> but I remember watching it and thinking to myself, Jesus, I look, I look petrified. <laughs> I can't believe how freaked out I look, you know. And here, here I've been telling everybody that, no, I was in the right frame of mind and I, when I stood on the blocks, I was ready to go. <laughs> and, I, and I really was. But, um, yeah, I looked, I looked um, a lot more uh, uh, nervous about it than I thought I might have. Yeah. Well, I'm actually, I'm reading this book right now, The Art of Fear, and, and it talks about, um, you know, actually not, not trying to conquer your fear, but using, you know, harnessing your fear to, to pull out a performance. And that's probably what it was. Yeah. You're probably, probably so scared that it did center you to a point where you were ready to perform it at your highest level, you know? So uh, it shows you care. Right. And I think the, um, you know, for me, if you, if one of the things I think that a lot of us, and, and this might be a generational thing too, you know, for, for those of us who have who, who grown up in an environment where showing emotion is not good and, you know, you've got to be sto- stoic and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, one, one of the things that we, we never talked about is actually being really open and, and honest about how you felt and actually admitting that sometimes you're scared or you don't know the answer or mm. you're not really sure. And... You know, if you don't actually know how to admit it how, or, or, or see it in yourself, how do you get past it? How do you work yourself around it? How do you find ways to, you know, utilise your your mental strength or your, I don't know, whatever it is that, that, that helps you through it? And that, that, that you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a psychologist or, or trained in this, so I don't have the, the right articulation for it. But what I do know, and I've seen this, many, many times in, you know, my life outside of the pool. You know, if, if you're not actually willing to admit when you don't know something to yourself, how can you possibly admit it to others and get help, you know? Um, and and that, that's kind of a, a core thing. And, 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 and it, it comes from fear. It comes from wanting to look like you know the answers and you're, you're in control and all that sort of stuff. And, Man, that's a hard way to live, and and it's not unsustainable. You know, I think a lot of people have been very, very successful once dealing and, and not sorry, not dealing with the fear. Mm. You're never sustainably successful unless you work out how to get through it and, and manage it. Yeah, well, mate, that's awesome. Good stuff in there. Some some incredible stuff, and you know, I wanted to say like. Like I said, when, when I saw you break a world record in Blacktown, I was a kid and I idolized you. And then I was sitting at home and watching you on TV and, and I idolized you. And then I went off to America for a number of years. So I really didn't travel with you. I didn't get to know you. I didn't, I didn't make any teams for Australia. So the, you know, from the moment I, I see you at Blacktown as a kid to the next moment I see you, we're, we're teammates on the Sydney Olympic team. Um, so for me, I've got, I've got this thing in my head about who you are and and, and it's all built up and and it just uh from the moment i met you you know you treated me so well and, and you know you're, you're probably sick of telling the same stories too and we haven't like you said we haven't spoken in 15 years or something but i knew from the moment i text you to come on and do this i knew you'd do it you know i just knew you'd say yes or you'd find a way because you were always good to me and and um and and so i don't know you know, I don't know what the perception was out there. If you were, you were cold or you were this or you're that, but you were never like that to me. You were always so 
warm to me. Maybe because I swam the 50s, so you just, <laughs> I wasn't a competitor. But I just, you know, like I saw a different side of you than maybe other people saw. I, I always saw you smile. I always saw you, um, you know, relaxed and and happy. And um, and I I love that about you, man. And I'm so thankful that you'd come on and do this with me today. Oh, look, mate, it's 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 easy, and I, and, and I appreciate that. And I and I look, I think the thing is, you know, for me, um, you know, I never. At a human level, right? I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm better than anybody else, and I don't believe that I deserve to be um, feeling that way. Because at the end of the day, we've all got our genius, right? And one of the things that I, I enjoyed about my swimming life, but even beyond it, is um, having the opportunity to see people and and learn from them. Right now, you say all of those things, but you know what? Um, the reason why that probably happened on the Australian team for you and I is because you were one of the few guys that was willing to actually talk to me because um, I'm hopeless at the initiation, but if someone talks to me, I'm all good, mm. and you did. Um, and it always blew me away, the, um, you know, the, um, the sense of self-confidence that you had and that you were able to display. And so, you know, that was easy enough in the team environment. But even beyond that, like, and I, I, I did mention this to you on the text, you know what, like, I look at all of us who, who were, that I swam with in those teams at those times, mm. and it, it absolutely blows me away, those of us who have managed to actually stay in the sport in a, meaning, in a truly meaningful way and, and give back and impart our genius. And like the, the success you've had as a coach is just, I, I can't, I, 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 it's extraordinary. I can't, I can't conceive of it. Cause I, I look at my, like I think about me and I would have been a hopeless coach. You know, I, I, I think I would have been one of those ones that just kind of, you know, well, I did it that way. So if you can't do it, you know, I, I, I can't help you kind of an attitude. Um, but you, you, you managed to, you know, immediately find this ability to connect with people and and, and, and impart and, and uplift and, and develop and that's you know that's genius in itself so um, I, I thank you for your words but I can assure you mate um, I I'm as blown away by by your success and you know I, I I'm, I'm as big a fan of, of, of people and sport as anybody else you know so it's um, it's, it's it's always fun having the chance to actually um, engage and connect because you know if we hadn't been on the team together i probably wouldn't have had the chance to speak to you either and know know that about you so I'm, I'm just as lucky i appreciate it mate well listen uh, a lot of good stuff in there today and i can't wait to share it with everybody this has been awesome um it's good to see you happy and healthy mate in this uh, quarantine uh, stay that <laughs> way for me and uh hopefully we'll all get back to work soon and uh you know let's let's stay connected all right yeah no absolutely it's been uh, been good fun thank you and i'm uh yeah, let, let's absolutely keep it going because it's um, it's hard to uh, it's hard to actually purposefully pull yourself back into remembering all that cool stuff that we did and the fun we had, and uh, yeah. it's only going to happen when you get to talk to others that were there. So it's That's awesome. True, Thank you. All right, KP. Thanks, mate. Take care. All right.